Hello, I'm Dr. Annaline Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's all about what to do when managing risk matters most. I'm very excited to be speaking today to Emeritus Professor Laurie Walsh, who is a specialist in special needs dentistry based in Brisbane where he served for 37 years on the academic staff of the University of Queensland School of Dentistry. Since retiring in December 2020, Laurie's remained active in hands-on bench research work as well as in supervising his research students, of which he has currently over 15. Laurie's been teaching microbiology and infection control at a postgraduate level for over 20 years and has served on the ADA Infection Control Committee for 23 years, including seven years as its chair. Laurie's published extensively in microbiology and infection control and represents dentistry on several standard Australia committees. Now, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to speak with Laurie and ask him the questions that so many of our members have put to us in recent times regarding infection control. Okay, so the first question that we've had submitted to ask you, Laurie, is what should every dental practitioner be looking out for in the updated guidance? I think it's really important to recognise that we're in a period of transition. So there's a lot of things that have been built into the fourth edition, which effectively we've already told people about in the news bulletin through the frequent articles over the last four or five years. So what we've done is basically it's like a service pack update. It bundles everything from the new standards, from NHMRC, from CDNA, all those little bits and pieces that have occurred, and it puts all those things into a dental context. But it's going to be followed by another service pack update, if you like, once we know what the dental board policy is going to be and once the new reprocessing standard comes out. So when you look at ICG-4, it's a very, very large update from number three, but there's going to be something coming down the train track. So you have to see it as being a process of transition. And Australia is actually pretty lucky this way. Most countries don't update their guidelines as often as we do. And a number of other countries draw heavily on ours when putting theirs together. So we sort of do their heavy lifting for them, which is fine. But I think we need to always be using the most recent information and evidence to help people in the profession. Now, that's really helpful. Thank you. I know one thing you and I discussed when I attended a recent infection control update with you, for example, was the autoclave testing. Mm. And you referred me back to an article that had been in the ADA bulletin in February of 2021, which I had read (laughs) and then filed in my head somewhere. (laughs) But if I recall it, there were some changes to the autoclave testing in that. Yeah. So what we're trying to do there is we're trying to get people into the mindset of what the reprocessing standard will be doing. And that standard will be called 5369, by the way. So that's the new number. There's no fours, no eights, no ones, and no fives quite deliberately. So in that process, there is a different logic that's been used. Because we have to remember that 4815 was put together in 2003 to 2005. So it's from a scientific point of view, getting a little bit dated and the thinking in the 4187 document, which has been through already two significant amendments since coming out in 2014, is much more up to date. 
and this is this move around the sort of appropriate tests. So what we've done in ICG-4 is pretty much tell people these are the pathways. There are already a range of approved tests that are available. This is a suggested way that you could be using them to start some to think about this as a new process so that when 5369 comes out, it's not suddenly, oh my gosh, we've got to suddenly do something different. So we're trying to, a little bit like the federal government letting things out before the budget, we're trying <laughs> to give people a bit of a sneak peek into some, some things that are coming down the train track. And this is really where the 4187 thinking has really been different from the 4815 thinking. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think as well, changing the number completely is going to really help practitioners because I, we have seen in the past some confusion with practitioners regarding the four documents that they have to have. And if they have similar names, you could see it would be easy if you were glancing to think that you were compliant when in fact you were working off outdated guidance. That's exactly right. And that's the reason why each of the covers of the infection trial guidelines from ADA has looked quite different. And yeah. in a way, we've actually replicated some of the colour scheme from the NHMRC in a sort of a differential way so that we can say, if you've got this version and it's purple, well, it actually goes with the NHMRC purple version and vice versa, just to try to make it easy for people to see that it's actually all connected together rather than just individual separate bits of stuff. That's really helpful. I think so many dental practitioners are really visual people. So color coding <laughs> things really helps. Now, another thing that you and I discussed in the past related to pre-procedural rinses. So it's my mm. understanding that that currently isn't mandated, but it's a recommendation. But looking forward, it might become stronger than a recommendation. Is that a fair comment, Laurie? Uh, it's something that is strongly recommended as part of the additional risk-based precautions under COVID. So it's been part of our COVID advice uh, consistently since about March of last year. And given that we're likely to have COVID in the community and depends on whose predictions you believe at the moment, but there's going to be some COVID around for a while. So it would be very good common sense to continue to do that into the future since we now have strong evidence around a whole raft of different commercial mouth rinses being highly effective against COVID-19, the virus SARS-CoV-2. And it's such a simple thing that sits at the top of the hierarchy of risk reduction. It's elimination. That's the best thing that we should be focusing on is get rid of the risk pathogen in the very first place. And rinses do that very well. And there's been some great research published in the last few months that tells that story very well and you'll see some being released fairly soon is a new little super summary of the latest evidence on COVID that I've compiled for the ADA that we'll be putting out on the infection control website in the next couple of weeks so that will for those people who like to check all the references they'll be able to find all the latest references <laughs> on the evidence for mouth rinses in that little section plus for lots of other topics as well of course. Oh that's excellent that's really helpful to know thank you it's one I'll keep a lookout for certainly. My patients really like the pre-procedural rinse they actually, I, I was surprised because I'll be honest, I was expecting some pushback because it's new. Um, and look, it, it's not neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just a thing. I was expecting some of my patients to be to push back, but a lot of them go, oh, this is really nice. Is this something I can get? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> they sell it in cold. Yeah. 
And, and in fact, it's been part of the standard set up for oral surgery for a long time in the same way as that you would drape a patient, you know, you'd swap around their mouth. It's been part of pre-surgical preparation since forever. So what we're doing is we're now just recognising that we do have some additional risks that we're trying to deal with through the pandemic. And it's just a very good way of including an additional measure to add to everything else like proper use of HVE suction and everything else to just bring us into a lower risk environment so that we can work without feeling we're always at risk, which is this whole burden that some people have had during COVID. We've got, you know, on one side, we can't work on the other side saying, you know what, I'm worried about being at work. So you have to balance those two things off. And this is where the framework approach that we've used has tried to give people some guidance and direction around that. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's a really good point that you tease out there, Laurie, because certainly we're seeing a lot of very distressed practitioners who are frightened for a number of reasons. Mm. And I was doing some reading myself on um, some papers and they were saying that the overwhelming emotional response to many health providers through COVID has been grief, anger and fear because mm. they're frightened of contracting COVID or more often frightened that they're going to pass it to somebody that they care about who may be vulnerable and may have much worse effects than they themselves experience. And they're grieving not being able to do the things that they want to do, do the treatments they want to do for patients at time, particularly in other parts of the world. So if you recall, the UK was locked up for a really, really long time regarding aerosol producing procedures, generating procedures. And yeah, that grief, that fit and being so angry too. So it's been, I think COVID's going to have some untold or unanticipated consequences for us as a profession as we move through it. I think it's particularly difficult because most dentists like to control things. So when you've lost your locus of control and you're being given public health directives and the information is changing at six o'clock every night on the news or at 11 a.m. when the premiers come out and give you the numbers, it's actually really difficult just to live in uncertainty when we're so used to things being predictable and controlled. And I guess what we've tried to do to navigate people through that is to say, here are things that we know from first principles and good evidence actually do work and will reduce mm-hmm. risk. And I think that gives people the the confidence that they can be at work and be able to work safely. Mm, no, definitely. Now, speaking of that, one of the questions um, I mentioned to you at the start that we've had some members who have been asking some questions that we wanted to put to you. So one of the questions we've been asked regarding safety and practice is how often should we realistically change our face masks when we are performing longer procedures? If we accept that efficacy diminishes after 20 minutes, should we change them every 20 to 30 minutes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there is some really great data around that. So the 20 minutes comes from the point at where the efficacy begins to decline. It's not the end. Basically, the efficacy is almost unchanged. Then after 20 minutes, it's a progressive decline. And when you reach just over two hours, that's when you're getting down to the point where it's basically of hardly any benefit whatsoever. Now, most people aren't going to be doing something that's generating a lot of aerosol for two hours. Even if they're doing, you know, a difficult surgical, they'll be stopping, starting. Mm -hmm. There'll be times when you're not doing aerosol generation. So it's highly unlikely there would you would ever in dentistry run into a situation where you would be doing something that would get you to past the end use point of your mask. Mm -hmm. So 
practically it means that when you're doing those longer visits, it's going to be a change of mask at the end, which is, of course, nothing unusual. But it shouldn't be that, oh, my gosh, 20 minutes is up. I need to race out and suddenly find <laughs> a new mask. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and one of the things I've done a lot of for uh, ADA at the national level is looking at the specifications of different brands of masks and mm -hmm. respirators because I sit on the standards committee which writes the standards for those things. And so when I've seen literally hundreds of these laboratory test performances on filtering bacteria, filtering viruses, resisting splash of synthetic mm -hmm. blood and those things, you really actually see the data that shows you how well these masks perform. So earlier this year, I did something that surprisingly hadn't been done before. And I wore a mask for five minutes and then took it apart in a clean room environment and then put it under the scanning electron microscope after dissecting it into its layers. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing to see how well masks of different sorts were actually able to trap incredibly small particles that I was just producing just by breathing. That's I wasn't fascinating. talking or singing or anything. And it really was great to sort of go for a bit of a deep dive and actually test the protection. Luckily in Australia, we now have several facilities that can do mask testing and certification. We didn't have those before COVID. Everything went to uh, Utah to Nelson Labs, which does most of the international mask testing. But through CSIRO, we've developed that capability in Australia. And of course, we now have several very good mask and respirator manufacturers in Australia. So we don't have the problem of a container load full of masks, you know, tipping over, you know, off the beach. <laughs> Falling in the water. <laughs> and going in the water. We've now got good on-site production. And not only that, it's separated. So some of it's in Adelaide, some of it's in Brisbane, like it's spread mm -hmm. around, which is also good in terms of corporate risk. <laughs> mm, that's a smart move, isn't it? Yeah. Staying on the masks, um, the N95 masks, We've had a couple of people ring up recently because they've been given the advice that they need to wear an N95 mask, first of all. And secondly, that they wear that mask for a period of four hours before changing. And consequently, that would mean that they would wear that mask across multiple patients. Now, we found that a little, I guess, confusing to unpick. And I wonder, do you have any comment on advice of that nature? So the first one is you always have to look at what the mask is approved for by the TGA and what its mm -hmm. instructions for use are. In fact, in ICG-4, you'll find that appears over 20 times, the statement, go back and check the manufacturer's instructions for use, because this is what the TGA has approved it for. So if it says this is for single patient use, well, then that's what it is for. Mm -hmm. if that's what the manufacturer says, that's what it's for because we do know that the performance does decline and those studies on masks declining over time have been done with surgical respirators as well. Mm -hmm. The only reason why people have advised using them for longer is because there was a shortage. Mm -hmm. But now with local production in Australia and with quite a few different brands around, it's less of an issue. In fact, it's fair to say with N95s that the main issue is that some dentists have been sold industrial dust masks that you probably yeah. could have bought at Bunnings, but don't have suitable splash resistance. And this is where a mask that's designed for a healthcare environment is different from the dust mask you get at Bunnings for grinding concrete or sanding the mm -hmm. floors of your house. They're both under the same um, AS17, 16 or 15 respirator standards, 
but it's to do with the fact that they're built for health environments. They've got fluid resistance if you get splashed on the front. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a, you know, there are some workarounds around that and using an appropriate face shield, for example, will give you some of the splash protection, but it doesn't get you around the fact that the mask is or respirator will be slowly declining in performance mm-hmm. as it's used. So really the four the four hour or the whole shift thing was really just a result of lack of supply and people trying to do their best. It's not regarded as being good practice. Thanks, Laurie. That's the advice that we gave. That was just like such a twenty. That's so twenty twenty advice. We've so moved on from then. But I did want to just ask your opinion because we're put in the position as advisors where people ring will ring up with all manner of questions across all aspects of dentistry, and a lot of the time we work intuitively. So, for example, when you were saying about checking the manufacturer's guidance, one thing I've noticed is on my box of masks it has the number two with a line through it yep. because what it's saying is. Not for two times, you know, so I, I didn't need to pull out the whole brochure exactly. that, that it was clearly marked. And I think just knowing stuff like that sometimes can be super helpful when you're working in an environment, sometimes with a non-dental practitioner, practice owner who may be giving you advice that doesn't necessarily sit well with you. And of course, we always say to the practitioner, you're the practitioner, you're the registrant. It's your that's obligation right. to be familiar with the advice. Now, that's super. Um, another question that we've been asked to ask you relates to our clinical attire. Mm. Now, um, the majority of us, of course, wear our normal clothes, as it were, and then we have a gown that we put over the top to wear. And then we take that off, so we're not dragging dirty dirty germs all around the shopping centre. We have been told that long sleeve gowns are a no-no and it's best to be bare below the elbow. What happens, though, if you have a wound or an injury on your forearm? How are we to protect that? How do we cover up and feel confident? Mm. So you need to have a waterproof dressing over that. And there's a range of different things that are used in dressings of that type. And in fact, it's our medical colleagues who have got some great stick-on materials that if you've got a larger wound, abrasion, if you've fallen over and bumped your elbow or something like that, it's literally like sort of synthetic plastic skin that you just literally stick on. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also materials that will spray on. There are ones that you can paint on. So it's really just an issue of making sure that the outside world remains separated from your inside world. Um, If you're using a product which is designed for that purpose, then that's perfectly fine. What we don't want people to do is to say, I'm just going to wrap my arm up in a bit of Glad Wrap. Let's just see how that goes because that creates all sorts of interesting dermatological problems. And of course, Glad Wrap was never designed for that specific purpose. And there are some situations where someone has skin that's so degraded that it's simply not possible to protect it. I'm thinking about people who get really bad atopic eczema, people who've got unmanaged psoriasis where the skin surface is broken. This might be a time that you might say, well, this person's actually not fit for work because it's not possible to protect the skin that's so broken down. And the NHMRC guidelines that came out in May 2019, they talked about this in exclusions around people not being at work because I mean I've seen this with people who've had hands that are so degraded Mm. that they're getting a lot of problems and we've actually seen this surprisingly in dental students who are often working as dental assistants at nights and Mm -hmm. on weekends and you work out they do something like 300 episodes of hand hygiene you know every week and if they're not doing that properly 
mm-hmm. you'll find that their hands just fire up and mm. they literally have to stop work. They get such degradation of the normal skin. So it's just a question of working out, is it something which can be managed in a normal and appropriate way or is it actually a medical reason why you shouldn't be practicing at this time? And mm-hmm. you can always get that advice from your GP doctor, from a dermatologist, mm-hmm. if you need to go a little bit further up the line. But generally, it's a really good common sense thing. If you can't stop your skin from oozing fluid mm-hmm. because it's got psoriasis, then you don't want the patient's fluid getting onto your mm-hmm. fluid because there's clearly an inside-outside breach. Mm-hmm. The, the analogy that most people understand really well is wet toilet paper. Okay. And the wet toilet paper analogy is also relevant to things like a wet paper plastic pouch mm-hmm. because now you've got a connection through the fluid between the outside and the inside. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what links those things together. It's just capillary fluid action. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Thank you, Laurie. Staying on gowns, we've had a question. Is it okay for me to lauder, Lorna, mm. I'm going to start that again. <laughs> is it okay <laughs> Is it okay for me to launder my gowns at home? And if so, is there anything special or additional I need to do to do those? So something that came in in the NSMRC guidelines in 2019 was that laundry practices need to align with the Australian standard for laundries, which is what basically commercial laundries follow. Mm -hmm. And there's a few things in that about the nature of the agents that are used, the separation of loads of different types. So if you look back through the previous three ICGs, we've referred to, for example, laundering your clinical clothes separate from your domestic clothes, Mm -hmm. for for example. So these sort of segregation things are actually built into the laundry standard. So in ICG-4, we just refer to the laundry standard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's such a stable document. um, When I dragged it out. It hadn't been changed in over 20 years, which is actually remarkable for a standard which had such a long life. And it's the one that all the commercial commercial laundry services use. And if you want to send your laundry out to a commercial service, it's the one that they need to be compliant with. So if you're selecting a laundry service, your, your question is, you know, is your facility compliant with that particular Australian standard? And if they are, then you're basically good to go. So all we've done in ICG-4 is just to align the laundry requirement to what's in NHMRC. That's good to know. Yeah. So that's one for people who are listening to go and have a look and check that they're doing the right things. That's really helpful. One common problem, I guess, or I wanted to ask you about a couple of common problems that we see. So I mentioned that obviously we're on the advisory line and people ring up for advice. Mm -hmm. So a common one that we see an issue with is, if I paint a picture for you, a new practitioner to a practice or perhaps a locum, and they turn into the, up to the practice for the first time, and mm. they will perhaps work there for a week or even sometimes only a day and become aware that there's an issue with the infection control. But unfortunately, they've treated multiple patients before that point. What quick checks do you think every practitioner should be doing when they walk into a dental practice? I think there's a few fairly obvious things and the usual one I do is to quickly run through the drawers from the bottom drawer to the to the top drawer and if visually they're highly disorganized that's the first little red flag that would know well that's a bit interesting and if I begin to notice things that aren't 
uh, known products, things that clearly are not TGA approved, things that might have been bought on eBay, for example, that aren't the legitimate versions of products. That would be the second, the second flag. And you know, I've worked in lots of locations, over 30 across Australia. And when you work out by opening the drawers where things are, you're also checking whether things are in date. Mm-hmm. Whether things have been stored appropriately, mm-hmm. there's just that's just the basic like where it is. But it's not just oh this is in this drawer. It's like well hang on a moment, are all the other normal checks and balances there? Because I can tell you, doing practice audits, I've found medicaments and pastes and things like that which are 30 years out of date, not not 30 months or 30 days, but 30 years. Now that takes a bit of doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my gosh, you know it's like a blast from the past. So that that would be the first thing. The other good good sign is if I've been asked to do an audit and I walk into a practice and we ask, say, oh, where is, where's your infection control uh, manual and your guidelines? And they can instantly point you mm-hmm. to those folders and you open them up and they're in date and they're clearly well organized and well put together. You have this sort of great sigh of relief. You think, oh, thank heavens. Um, because you know that the journey is going to be one of probably fine tuning. And in some cases, you might find absolutely nothing. Whereas if they say, oh, yeah, now I think we've got those around somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the more you the more you look, the general arbiter is you always look for the weakest point. So if I'm involved in a public health audit, the first thing I'll do is find the newest employee in the practice and the most junior put them in a room and ask them like, how does this work in the practice? Mm-hmm. Because a practice is only as good as the weakest link in the chain. There's no point taking the most senior experienced person who helps set the whole place up and asking them because they're not the person who's at the cold face every minute. You mm-hmm. need to go for the weakest link. And so a bit like the famous TV show, you identify the weakest link and ask them. And unfortunately in the situation you described, the new person in the practice may well be the weakest link. Mm-hmm. And particularly if there's been a shortage of dental assistants, which is becoming a big issue in Australia more, more broadly, and someone has got someone who's doing this as an after-school job, and they say, oh, that's great. We've been so so busy. You know, we, we need some more hands on deck. And the first thing they do is shuffle them out the back into the sterilizing room. And they say, here, can you scrub these instruments? Basically, they're putting them in one of the riskiest tasks without the necessary background and orientation to really what is required. So we need to understand about putting the person who least understands the risk in the position of greatest risk. And we that's something we can't do mm. from a, from an OCH health and safety legislative point of view, uh, as well as from an infection control point of view. So... No, yeah. that's that, no, that's yeah. We are having a shortage of dental nurses. It's becoming a real struggle, isn't it? Yep. We always recommend that practitioners go and have a look in the sterilisation room as well, because I think you can tell a lot just from whether or not there are clean or dirty demarcated areas. You know, that's just a, a very simple way of saying, well, where is our flow? Where is our direction of travel? And if there isn't one, then that tells us something. I always that's ask right. for the logbooks too when I go to a new surgery. I always ask to see the logbooks, and sometimes people look at you in quite a startled way. But I do think as the registrant, we do actually have an obligation to be having a having a little look at those sometimes from time to time. What do you think, Laurie? Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been known to tell our family students to say, you know, when you graduate, as soon as you begin working in this place, then if there are things that are wrong, then part of the obligations 
of fixing those things is going to land on you. And if you say nothing and do nothing, and the practice does get an order of inspection, then you'll be caught in the dragnet that will come with that. Mm-hmm. And I can recall situations where graduates have phoned me up and said, oh, look, I've seen this, you know, what do you think I should do? It's like, well, you need to mention that to the practice owner, you know, mention about, you know, some of the areas that they might be able to improve on and how to address the issue. Whereas if you just simply say, oh, well, this is the way it is here, and you adopt all those substandard practices, then you are sort of, in a way, sort of aiding and abetting a problem. Mm-hmm. You're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. Mm-hmm. The other one we see is when they say, oh, um, so-and-so in their surgery does this, but I don't do that. Well, you know it's going on, though, so <laughs> <laughs> kind of still not the same. Another common issue that we have, Laurie, we see infection control breaches, and it's often that classic, somebody put the autoclave, that loaded the autoclave, didn't turn it on. Yeah, someone else unloads it, didn't realise. I know our autoclave, you used to be able to uh, almost force it to reprint the labels. It now has a safety mechanism, so it cannot it cannot physically reprint labels. So that in itself is a fail safe that we've had put it put in because mm. we needed to know that those things couldn't happen. But, you know, these things have happened in the past and they do happen. And naturally, normally it's they don't realize until a couple of scales and cleans and three surgicals have been done or whatever. Yeah. And they ring us for advice. And our advice, of course, is that they need to disclose this to the patient and we walk them through that. Well, our advice is first stop, stop. Work out where all the equipment is. <laughs> Find it all. <laughs> Take all the stuff out of circulation. Okay. And then we work through obviously notifying the patients. And of course, the last thing that we do is we do our audit, our loop. Why did it happen? And we say to use this as a learning experience. And it's not a blame game because if it's a blame game, no one's ever going to admit when they find that there are errors because they'll be too frightened. That's that's exactly right. So I've investigated more of that incidence than I care to remember over. And (laughs) and I've been going on for, you know, 25 years plus. The the issue now is that when we go through and do a root cause or a fishbone uh, type of analysis, you're looking at some of the underlying things that allowed this to happen. So you might Mm. just say, oh, this person was, you know, simply slipped up. But was there a lack of training? Was there a lack of supervision? Mm. Was there a lack of a process or documentation? There's always some fundamental things that you find that are wrong, and they're often actually quite simple to fix. Mm. It's often something really basic. Oh, we hadn't realized. And I always tell my students, I said, when you pick up a packet and you open it and use it, you need to be confident yourself that Mm. it has been sterilized. So, for example, is it crinkly? It feels different. It sounds different. It looks different. Those things take you less than a second to check. So don't turn around and tell me, oh, I couldn't tell. It's like, we've trained you. You know what a packet that's been sterilized is like. So for me, it's an automatic reflex. It's not as if I don't trust the staff who work in Steri, but I need that confidence myself. So I will pick it up and go, yes, it looks crinkly. It sounds crinkly. The indicator has changed. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no breaches and therefore I'm happy to use the item in this, in this packet. Mm-hmm. Because if you have that last line of defense, it will intercept the mm-hmm. non-sterilized load mm-hmm. because it will turn up. It won't be crinkly. It'll sound slippery. And you go, hang on a second. These indicators have well. changed and you go ding-a-ling-a-ling. Where else are the same packets from this load? Yeah. The girls always laugh at me because I insist on looking, touching and listening to the packets. And they say, can I open these? And I always look at them and I pat them down just to be confident in myself. But it's just like you say, those checks. So the problem that we often have then 
is that not some non-dentist practice owners our members will ring for the advice and we give that advice which i would say would be standard advice given by any dental legal consultant in our yep. position but the non-dentist practice owner says mm, no i don't think so we don't want any investigation of this incident and we're certainly not going to tell the patients and you need to ignore that person's view now we personally think that's quite a dangerous position to take what's your view on that uh, it's extremely dangerous under the Public Health Acts. And if people in Australia have learned anything in the last 18 years, 18 months rather, it is that the chief health officers and public health acts are all mightily powerful. Sure we are. all know that they can switch things on, they can switch them off in a heartbeat. And it's that same piece of legislation that allows them to issue prohibition orders and to basically close up your effective clinical operation. So the last thing you want to do is to elevate the problem to where it becomes a public health problem. And many people in dentistry haven't really understood until recently that it's not just ARPA and the board who regulate, the public health units can also mm -hmm. regulate and you can be caught by a scissor action and get pincered between both mm -hmm. because one can inform the other and they often will do that mm -hmm. depending on the, on the severity. So uh, a public health audit of which I've been involved in numerous of them you know, it comes with enormous potential consequences for the practice. So you would never underestimate what what could be done. And this will affect the owner because this affects through the prohibition order component, the viability of the business. It's literally mm -hmm. turn the lights off, shut the door. It's exactly the same in COVID. If someone came in and said, you know, you've had an exposure here, you're shutting your practice for two weeks, which happened in many situations in Victoria, for example, the mm -hmm. practice does nothing for, for two weeks, except things they can do by tele-dentistry, mm -hmm. but no one will walk in through the door. A uh, public health breach in the same way to a practice owner is literally the end of their business, be they a small practice owner or a big one, the, the implications are the same. So... That there's that second pathway and that's always available where the problems haven't been resolved. It's the very big stick, unfortunately, that occasionally comes out. It's really helpful to have that advice. Thank you, Laurie, because obviously, from our perspective, our registrants know their risks and they know their potential risks to their registration. But when a non-registrant is almost mm. trying to compel them to do something, I think it's really helpful for us to be able to give them that additional piece of information to pass to that non-registrant just to let you know, hey, you actually have got some risk here too. I think that that regardless of all the other interlocking and interlacing moral and ethical issues here, I think it's quite helpful to have that be able to be able to feed back to them. Mm. So moving on with these questions that we've been asked, I just have a handful more to ask you, please, yes. if that's okay. So the first question then is, we've been asked, when's the best time to do a foil test for your ultrasonic? Because I've been advised the best time to take it's at the end of the day, and then you throw out the contaminated solution and only have to change it once. But I'm confused, because what if my machine hasn't been working properly all day? Has the complete cleaning of those equipment not been compromised? Okay, um, so under the Australian Standard 2773, of which I was one of the <laughs> contributors to that, that was a new version that came out in 2019. So it basically talks about using an approved test and an approved test method, which of which there are a range on the market. So there are um, parametric tests, which will give you a much more nuanced appreciation of how well your ultrasonic is working. And of course, there is the foil test, which is what many people have been using. Mm -hmm. The whole issue with ultrasonic 
cleaners in dental practice is unless it's an extremely small one, so we're talking about a one or one and a half litre one, mm-hmm. it generally has more than one transducer. Mm-hmm. And the transducers don't all fail at the same time. So what a foil test will show you is that you have some discontinuities in your pattern of ultrasonic energy because you've got one transducer that is dying, but you might have two that are working fine. So in a typical, say, 20-litre or 14-litre ultrasonic, you would have, for example, three transducers. And the issue is that they don't sort of suddenly die because when you put an ultrasonic on, you can actually see the standing waves on the surface of the water, and you can also hear it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you had the one ultrasonic cleaner that was tiny and only had one, and let's say the electronics or the transducer died, it wouldn't make a sound when you turn on. You would know straight away that something was wrong because it would mm-hmm. normally squeak along and, and you'd be able to recognize that. So the scenario that, oh, it's suddenly not been working at all, I don't think actually could occur without you being mm-hmm. aware of that. The whole reason for doing it when you throw the solution out, which is often in the middle of the day, or if you're not using it very much at the end of the day, is because that's a tougher test. When you've got more protein in the water, it's more difficult for the ultrasound to create the cavitation that creates the little linear shear forces along the surface, these little jet streams that actually do the cleaning. So you're giving it a tougher test rather than an easier test when there isn't any bio-burden or protein in the water. That's the reason why common sense would tell you you better test it at a tougher interval. Mm-hmm. In general, the reliability of ultrasonic cleaners is in fact extremely good. Um, so the the likelihood of you getting a failure in one is much less than the likelihood of you having a failure in a steam steriliser, mm-hmm. where you've got things like door seals and vacuum pumps, mm-hmm. other bits and pieces that you know don't tend to have such a long median time before failure. Mm-hmm. So that's the logic behind the advice about doing it when you change your solution. It also gets rid of all the little microscopic bits of aluminium foil (laughs) that could theoretically increase the risk of corrosion if they were carried over through later parts of the reprocessing cycle. Thanks, Laura. That's really helpful. So just a few more questions, as I said. So one of the questions we've been asked is, what are the merits of HEPA filtration, HEPA filtration in the surgery when there's air conditioning or other barriers to getting fresh air changeover? Mm. So um, air conditioning is uh, a topic that deserves several hours on its own. But in, <laughs> in, 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 very simple, in very simple terms, there's been some great recent research done on this in the UK, where, as you would well know, often practices don't have any air conditioning. It's just no, it's a, a window. <laughs> it's just a window, and then you open the window. That's right. And so there's been some great studies which have been done looking at what happens when you open the windows, and if you're in a dental hospital, what happens when the air conditioner is on versus off? Because what happens in a central air conditioning plant is there is a level of filtration, and that will remove things from the air depending on the number of air changes per hour. Mm-hmm. So the literature from the UK, particularly in the last two months, has been really fun to read because it's literally about the scenario where people who don't have any air movement, there's there's no fans, there's no air conditioning, suddenly fling the windows open and they just show an effect of dilution. In Australia, it would be uncommon to find a dental practice that didn't have an air conditioner mm. just because of the fact that we just get bigger changes in temperature here. 
The big issue, though, is whether you have a split system or a ducted central system. Mm -hmm. So in the split system, it's called split because the evaporator or condenser is located outside. So it effectively recycles the air around inside the room. Mm -hmm. So the fresh air that opens enters the room ha happens when you open the door. That is a situation where the load of virus in a room or aerosol can actually increase over time. And that's mm -hmm. been documented in many studies now. So nothing new about that. However, if you have a central air conditioning system that works effectively, then it will reduce the amount of virus in the air, particularly when the number of air changes per hour is greater. So it all depends on the design. Many dental practices in shopping centers mm -hmm only have the what's called the return air or the air collection part. They only have one of those in the whole practice, often out in a hallway somewhere. Whereas ideally, you would put one of those in each room, which would basically turn the room air over at a much greater rate by mm -hmm. taking out through negative pressure or low-level suction the aerosols in that room. So if you look at a, you know, a contemporary building uh, like the Oral Health Centre in Brisbane, mm -hmm. look in the, 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 you know, the, the rooms where I work, each of those operatories has got a return air. Whereas if you go to a shopping centre, you'd find there's only one return air. So that totally changes the way that, that air moves in a practice. And so it's possible to adjust air conditioning to improve its performance. But if you've got a split system, or a system that's hung out a window, so a window-based mm -hmm. air conditioner, you're in a very different scenario. The advantage of a window-based system, though, is they can be set to recirculate or to bring in fresh air. Mm -hmm. So that is one of their strengths, but they are noisy, of course. Whereas if you've got a perfect split system, then you're in much of more of a need to bring in fresh air. And that's mm -hmm. why, in some cases, people might even put in a little ventilation fan like the sort you might have in a bathroom. Mm -hmm. which you might turn on between patient appointments just to literally drag air through the room and exhaust it outside. And you could exhaust it into the ceiling space or out mm -hmm. through a wall. There's numerous ways you could do it. But at least it brings some new air in. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on the nature of the way that you treat the air in your room. But mm -hmm. I said, yeah, a very big topic that, again, you know, if we want, we can talk about it more at a later visit. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. So, Laurie, there's been quite a lot of confusion about the loss of transfer tweezers in practice. What what feedback have you got for our members about that? Yeah, this is an interesting topic. And I guess it's one of those things that has been something that people probably haven't recognised what the point is. The issue is not around transfer tweezers or forceps. It's about what holds the transfer tweezers or forceps. So if someone is going to retrieve something and they go through in line with the National Hand Hygiene Initiative, take off their gloves, do their hand hygiene, and they use their bare fingers to pick up something from a drawer, there will be some items like burrs or endophiles where it's simply not practical to pick them up with bare fingers. So people will use tweezers to pick them up. There's no problem with that. The whole way that the wording in ICG-4 is directed, it's about when there are dirty gloves and people have got a dirty glove in a drawer fishing around to pull out whatever it is, cotton rolls or something else. The issue is not about the tweezers, it's about what is on the hand that is mm -hmm. holding the tweezers. So if you go back to those first principles of not breaching zones, it's actually really sort of common sense in a way. So hopefully that interpretation will explain to people 
the common sense principle. It's a bit like if you go to the the butchers to buy some meat and you see the person handling your meat with their bare hands and the meat is unwrapped and then you see them handling all the cash and the coins and scratching themselves, you would go straight away, oh my gosh, you know, there's something wrong. It is literally about basic hygiene. So the issue is about what is on the hand that is holding the tweezers. If it's a clean hand that's been through hand hygiene, then that's not an issue. It's when a dirty glove holds tweezers and goes in a drawer. That's the issue. So hopefully that will make sense. One of the questions we were asked, and I understand where our colleagues coming from from this, I, I suppose. Um, they've asked, look, is there any point in me still asking patients about their bloodborne virus status if we're routinely treating patients all the same? The reason why we want to know about BBV status, I mean, I can tell you in, in my specialty, we see patients with uh, hepatitis C, that's poorly managed or they're not on their medicines and people with HIV all the time. So the problem is it's not the disease, it's the conditions that come as a result of disease. So for example, my hep C patients who are not compliant with their antivirals, mm -hmm. they're going to bleed more, they're going to have more dry mouth, they're going to give me more problems during oral surgery and particularly during tooth extractions. So there is a range of additional things that we would put in place to deal mm -hmm. with those preventable complications. It's not so much about, about the risk, although of course there isn't a, a vaccine to hep C and it's unlikely there will ever be a vaccine to hep C, mm -hmm. but, there's, but there's very good therapy. It's about us knowing, like most things that our patients wonder about, like why would you ask about that? Well, it's because if you've got that condition, there are implications for how we manage you. You mm -hmm. might bleed more. You might have a reduced response to local anaesthetic or to uh, analgesic medicine or something like that. There's always implications. And if you don't know what those are, then I suggest it's time to do some <laughs> CPD and maybe go back and, and remind yourself why all those questions are there. But every question on a medical history is there for a really good reason. Mm -hmm. um, they're highly evolved tools and the ones that I use as a checklist are much more comprehensive than ones that are used in uh, general dental practice for a whole range of reasons. But, you know, occasionally patients give us a bit of a strange look and go, now that's a question a dentist hasn't asked me before, mm. you know, but we always preface it by saying this question is really useful to guide us in terms of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think with experience, you learn that a good history is really the key to many things. There was a, a conference recently on molecular diagnostics, and someone was talking about all the wonderful things you can tell from a blood test and, of course, also from a saliva test. And, you know, with all these wonderful machines and technology, all these things. And it got to question time, and an elderly GP doctor who'd been in a country town for, for many years put up his hand and said, most of those things can also be worked out with a really comprehensive history in about 15 minutes. And there was a sort of hush in the audience. And it was a really good point because a lot of things can be revealed by a really good history. And so we always need to remember that what patients tell us is affected by their memory mm. and also by what they're prepared to tell us. 
And certainly in my specialty, we'll often uncover things at a second or third visit that a patient wasn't prepared to tell us at the first visit because they didn't know us, they didn't trust us, they, we hadn't built a rapport with them. And that's particularly true for people who've had sexual abuse, for example, mm. who often have dental phobia and you get into the reason for the phobia and you find that they've been abused. And that's not something they're going to volunteer and tell you on no. the first visit. So it's a bit like unwrapping an onion. So patients' history is an extremely useful thing to inform what we do, but it is something that as we gain our relationship trust with the patient, they'll often disclose more things to us that turn out to be extremely important. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps that colleague was thinking solely in the terms of infection control, I would suggest, and perhaps not considering the actual underlying medical issues and complications that can come with a bloodborne virus and the yeah. complexities of care. But you're quite correct. Those questions on the medical history, they're all there for a reason. <laughs> they're all there for a reason. Yeah. Now, speaking of medical histories, obviously we've pertained to the fact I am a POM. Um, well, not anymore. I'm, of course, Australian citizen now. But back in my day, there was something when I was going through dental school that was absolutely huge. And that, of course, was mad cow disease. Of course. Yeah. But prions, I haven't heard that word mentioned for a really, really long time. Is it still a thing? Um, it is. It is a thing. In fact, the national guidelines on prion disease were uh, reviewed relatively recently. And last year, I was on a task force to actually come back and just see where things were with prion disease. So we did a fresh look at really prion disease around Australia. So a couple of interesting things. First of all, the 2013 guidelines from SMRC on prion disease are the benchmark of where you go. And those basically say that if you're doing dental procedures that you'd be doing in an office-based practice, you don't need to worry about, about prion disease. If you're doing maxillofacial surgery, it's a different story because mm -hmm. you will be running into the central nervous system. There is still prion disease in Australia. We still have one case per million of spontaneous mutation that causes Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Mm -hmm. We still have some families that have got the inherited forms like um, GSS and FFI and those sort of diseases. And there is a very strong support network and there's an excellent registry of prion disease that's hosted uh, through... Um, a university facility in Melbourne. So we've got really good data on where prion diseases occur. But the really good thing is if someone turns up who's had a relative who's had prion disease, things like that, for office-based dentistry, drill, fill, endodontics, those things, there is nothing different you need to do. However, there's a little interesting fact that isn't widely known but may interest uh, your members, and that is that in the UK, of course, there was a large amount of variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and this really drove the concerns around 2002, 2003 about uh, eating beef and all mm -hmm. those related matters. And it's widely touted that there has never been variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in Australia. Um, it's certainly never been in the the sheep and goats and the other sort mm -hmm. of um, you know, ruminant communities. And it's never been in the zoos but technically we have had a case in australia so there was a there was an animal that was shipped to australia from an overseas zoo that did have a uh, variant cjd and the animal was uh, quickly diagnosed and was put down 
and was never out in the general community and there was never any risk. But we did have a, a glancing exposure or a near miss event, you might <laughs> say. Um, but we never had it in the food chain, which was the difference between here and uh, and, and the UK, which is very fortunate for Australia. But yes, yeah, so it is, it's still a thing. But the current guidelines are certainly fit for purpose. And probably about every six months, I'd get a phone call um, from someone who's got a case or to give advice or a case will pop up in our special needs unit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there would be just by population basis about 20 to 30 um, cases just on that one per million statistic Mm -hmm. a year. So it's certainly something that that will still happen just because of, of, uh, of mutation. Mm, that's good to know. Thank you. And our last question then. Mm. Have we seen the death of the handshake in dental practice, do you think? Do you think that's uh, gone now? Gosh, oh gosh. Um, it's difficult during uh, during COVID. And I guess in my in my specialty of special needs, we probably touch our patients a lot more than I built because mm. we have to help them get in the chair. We've got to help them get out. We're picking them up. We're moving them around. We're comforting them. Um, and it actually takes a while to work through all the right things about appropriate touching. It's its own mm. little topic um, when it is appropriate to touch and when it's not. And I've always, in, always enjoyed a good handshake with a patient, and it's something that I've really missed. Mm. <laughs> so um, once the COVID thing is, is over and we return to a, a more standard uh, existence, then I suspect it probably will be back. And I think there is, through the way we have the National Hand Hygiene Initiative, mm-hmm. we can certainly deal with the issues around it. So I don't don't think that that's a problem. It's more that will we feel comfortable in doing it? And it's the same question now that previously, if we got on a very busy tram or train or bus, we would have just you know looked at our phone or read a book mm-hmm. or something. Whereas now you'd be thinking, I wonder what all these people around me, you know, have got. I wonder what they're breathing out. There's mm-hmm. probably this little limbering, little seed of anxiety that probably wasn't there before, and that might change the way that some people react to simple things like handshakes and hugs and things like that. Mm. And I think we just need to be conscious that that little remnant of the pandemic will probably stay with us for some time. No, I think you're right. And as someone who's a hugger, COVID has been very difficult for me, Laurie, let me tell you. (laughs) And I also find it in some ways sad because I have two young children, as you know, and they're now being raised in an environment where it's no longer acceptable to hug. And, you know, it's, yeah, I I think it's, as we said earlier, untold, untold challenges of COVID. That's right. Thank you so much for your time today. I always really enjoy talking with you because I feel like I come away so much more knowledgeable than I did when our conversation started. And I just really appreciate your time, Laurie. Thank you. Uh, A pleasure, Anne-Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. For those of you participating in the competition to win some beats, the phrase you're waiting for is nothing beats, risk matters. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.